Amen. Thank you, Matthew, Samantha, for leading this morning. And I do want to say thank you, I mean, to the four families that are sitting here. I mean, you have all served this church in one capacity or another, I mean, tremendously, just in the last two months. Um, and so I'm thankful for that because I can't do this and I can't preach every week and I can't run all of this stuff. And so I'm so thankful um, that you guys are, are here and serving and doing what you are doing for this body. Um, and as I said this morning, like I walked in here and the one thought I had, <clears throat> maybe inspired by the Spirit, I don't know, is, is we need to be fed. Right? We need to be fed this morning. As we gather for, for worship on Sunday mornings, we gather to be fed corporately as a flock, as CFBC, as this local body. And so this morning, again, I, I may echo that every week for, the, for, for who knows how long we're doing this. I don't know, but I feel that very strongly this morning, and I don't know why. Um, but as we enter into this time of worship. I'm going to pray, and then we will begin in John 7. Father, again, thank you for your word, Lord, for your spirit that stirs things up in us. Father, this morning, feed us. Feed us by your word. Grow us, shape us, mold us into, be, into the image of your Son and our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Um, it was July of this, July of 2020, I was preaching. And as I was getting ready to preach, I was sitting at the breakfast bar in my kitchen. I had the European Championships on. That's a soccer tournament, kind of a big deal. Um, had that on the TV. Denmark was playing. I don't remember who Denmark was playing against. Um, and as I was prepping to preach on the Sunday that was coming, the kids were gone, Salem was gone, they were out doing something, I don't remember what it was, but I was prepping to preach. And as I was prepping to preach, I had the game on in the background, just kind of listening, white noise as I was prepping. And as the prep was happening, I remember it very clearly, one of the players, and you might even remember me talking about this in my sermon from that Sunday, one of the players collapsed on the sideline. He received a throw-in, made the pass off, get, got the ball away, and he collapsed. No physical contact, nothing, and he, he just went down. And um, the cameras, I mean, it's, it's one of those situations, nobody in broadcast knows what to do when that happens. I mean, it's a fairly unprecedented thing and so the cameras were still on the game still on the field and you could see the uh, the medics performing CPR you could actually see them performing the presses the compressions on television the announcers had no idea what to do the players did what they were supposed to they formed a wall a barrier to try and give privacy to the player who has collapsed um, and he ultimately was resuscitated and was alert and awake, leaving the field. No problems. Long run. This past Monday night, as all of you know, I'm watching the Bills game, as I always do, and never miss one if I can't. And 
what, nine minutes into the first quarter? DeMar Hamlin, safety for the Bills, makes a tackle, stands up, collapses. You know, is it a head injury? I, I don't know. It kind of looked like some, some head injuries that have happened this season, but then they showed it in slow motion. There's no head contact, so just collapsed. And as you all know, chest compressions, CPR, you didn't see it on TV this time. It was ESPN who did the broadcast for the Euros. ESPN again, no chest compressions that you can see, but they were happening nine minutes, right? Is that what you said, Mason? Nine minutes, chest compressions. Yesterday, he sent out his first public comments saying that he was thankful for everybody, alert and awake. But as you all know, or maybe you don't know, over the last week, I have never seen so many people, religious and secular, calling for prayer. I mean, it's shocking. I have a, a list on my Twitter, it's just Bill's stuff. It's Bill's beat reporters, Bill's fans, Bill's players, it's all Bill's, only Bill's. And the amount of people, who I guarantee you are not all believers, the amount of people calling for prayer is shocking. You see on ESPN, Dan Arlovsky, who is a believer, he's a, a pundit, he's a former quarterback, played for the Detroit Lions, he was terrible, but he's a great pundit, a very bright individual, he's a believer stopped and prayed on national television, on ESPN, at the desk. I mean, it's wild. I, have, I don't think I've ever seen a national call for prayer like I have seen in the last six days. It's wild. But you know what that, that reveals? You know what that reveals, don't you? In the midst of people's very worst tragedies, it shows that they have some kind of deep-seated knowledge that there is a God. Think about it. The most secular people, the most raucous and rowdy individuals with the beers on Sunday at the games, all of the things, and the national outcry for prayer. Again, in the midst of our worst, deepest, darkest moments, it indicates and shows that there is a God out there. That there is a God out there. Now, you can push back and you can say, yeah, none of those people were mentioning the name of Jesus, blah, 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 blah. Yes, 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 I agree. I don't disagree with you. But you know what it does reveal? Is that people have a very deep-seated understanding that there is a God who exists. And it also encourages us to be the ones who go and share the reality that we know. But it also indicates that everybody has an opinion, too. As Twitter does Twitter stuff, everyone has an opinion. There was one person that I've seen all week with the pushback against the praying. 
one person. But there were loads of opinions of who Jesus is. And so in the midst of this national outcry for prayer for Damar Hamlin, we also should note, as we get into our text today, that everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. And so, the sermon summary this morning, I'm going to try and start doing these sermon summaries, kind of just giving you all of the upfront points. So if you fall asleep, hopefully within the next, the first 10 minutes of a sermon, you will know the point, or points. So the sermon summary this week. Who is Jesus? Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. And I will say that your opinion and their opinion holds no weight and does not matter. Because the reality is, Jesus defines for himself who he is. God reveals to us for real who he is through the text of Scripture. Our opinions of who Jesus is do not matter if they do not align with the word of God. Your answer is not the authoritative one unless it is the answer scripture gives. That God breathes. And secondly, what you do with this Jesus, not your opinion... What you do with this reality of Jesus will influence your life. It will influence your life temporally, in time, and it will influence your life eternally. That is the point today. You may have an opinion of Jesus, but if it is not aligned with Scripture, it doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. And what you do with the reality of Jesus, as he says, I am the bread of life. Come and partake. Eat of me and I will give you food so you will no longer hunger. Same thing to the lady at the well. Come and drink and I will give you water so you will no longer thirst. If your opinion does not align with the reality of who Jesus is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it doesn't matter. And what you do with those statements What you do with those things that Jesus says of himself, that God reveals of himself, it will influence how you live, it will influence how you die, it will influence what you do after you die. So, if you want to fall asleep from here on out, it's your prerogative. There are the points up front. Our text this morning, we began John 7 last week, here we are, John 7, 10 through 13, let's read this here. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet, for the fear of the Jews... No one spoke openly. John 7, 10 to 13. So, 
Again, we hopped into into this John passage last week. David started us out with verses 1 to 9. And we, uh, just to give context, again, we are here at the beginning, well, maybe the beginning, we don't quite know where this falls in the Feast of Booths, but here we are with the celebration of the Feast of Booths happening. Now, this Feast of Booths, if you, could, if you go to Leviticus 23, 26 to 42, you will read of it in the Levitical law and the expectations for worship and practice during this festival. If you go to Exodus 23, you will read of this Feast of Ingathering, which is the same thing. It's really the first practice of this feast. Here in the Leviticus passage, it is the enactment of this feast as law. This is one of the major feasts of the religious holidays, of the, of the Jewish uh, calendar, I should say. This is one of the three biggies. This is an important feast, an important time in Jewish life, an important time in the Jewish community, an important time of celebration. Now, typically... This feast happens at the end of September to early October. It is an eight-day feast. It runs from Sabbath to Sabbath. And quite actually, uh, the passage that we go through this week and the next several weeks, John 7, is filled with turmoil because of works done on the Sabbath. Don't miss that point. The Feast of Booths runs from Sabbath to Sabbath. The controversy, the conflict, really the reason the Jews want to kill Jesus in the first place is because of the work he has done on the Sabbath. Again, no work done on those days. This is a time for food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings. And it is a time in which the people of Israel, they live in tents for seven days. They live in tents, right? Selah just asked me to go camping this summer. We go tent camping. We have a big old tent and we sleep in the tent and we live in the tent for however many days that is. That is what these Jewish people were doing, though not in the wilderness, in the Jewish uh, Jerusalem city center. Gathered in tents, camping in commemoration of what? In commemoration of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That's, that's kind of what the commemoration of this event is. But it kind of turns into a harvest festival. This is a time of, of celebration, of, again, in-gathering. What are they in-gathering? What are they bringing in? They're bringing in the crops of the year. This is September, October. This is a harvest festival. Go across the bridge into New Albany every, every November is what? Harvest homecoming. This was the first year in New Albany that really Harvest Homecoming was free of COVID regulations and we went and it was insane. I mean, you couldn't even walk without bumping into people. It was nuts. Three city blocks covered by three by two city blocks. I mean, shoulder to shoulder. Had to push through people to go get your sausage from the sausage stand. It was nuts. That's what this was. This was a harvest festival, a celebration of the bringing in of crops. It's a big deal. They didn't have grocery stores. And so remember from last week, Jesus' brothers, his blood brothers, his paternal brothers, his actual family, Mary's children, want him to go to the feast. They don't understand him. Right? They're like, 
if you really are God and you really are doing these things, you can't just do it in private. You have to go show yourself. Go and go and go and do it. They didn't get it, right? If you want to be known, you can't stay in secret. Common sense. Go up and show yourself. Jesus, no, no. Now is not my time. Now is not my time for what? To reveal himself in glory. To reveal his glory. Nor is it his time to be arrested or killed, whichever view of that not his time you want to hold to. Neither of those are the case. So recall Judea. Right? This is where Jerusalem is. It's south. He was in Galilee. Almost all of the ministry thus far was in Galilee, just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And he would have to travel south to Jerusalem, into Judea, for this festival, to Jerusalem. And he says, no, I'm not going. But then we get to our passage, and he does the exact opposite of what he appears to say he goes and so our first point this morning as we have walked through this context is what i have said already the whole world has an opinion of jesus everybody go ask the guy in the in the therapy shop next door they have an opinion of jesus go ask david at kingdom uh coffee King, kingdom coffee or kingdom bean he has an opinion of Jesus. Go ask the mattress people around the corner. I'm sure they have an opinion of Jesus. Go to the street corner, downtown Louisville, the homeless guy, he has a def, uh, uh, an opinion of Jesus. Right? Go to your business place, your office place, they have an opinion of Jesus. Everybody in the world has an opinion of Jesus. And the many, many of those people believe their opinions are the authoritative fact. We see this, right, in verses 10 to 12. Many people, everybody has an opinion, and the, the most vociferous, the most antagonistic of those opinions often believe themselves to be the greatest authority on the person and work of Jesus Christ, though they have probably never once opened a scripture. Verses 10 to 12, here's what John records. After his brothers have gone up from the feast, then he went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering among the people. There was much muttering among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no. He is leading the people astray. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody. His brothers, they have an opinion. Right? You see that implied in them saying, go, go, go. You, you want to be known publicly. You claim to be the son of God. You claim to be God man, the God the son. You can't do it privately, so go. They have an opinion. The Jews, not just like every Jewish person, we're going to see here, we see here a differentiation between the Jews and the people. Right? And you're going to see that throughout the Gospel of John. There is a differentiation between the Jews and the people. The Jews are the religious authorities. They are, generally speaking, those antagonistic to Jesus. And you have the people who are just like the crowd. Israel. The guys living in Jerusalem and living in Galilee. And the people who are just kind of living their daily lives. There is a differentiation we have to note there. But the Jews have an opinion. 
right? They have an opinion. They wouldn't want to murder him if they didn't. The crowds at the feast, they have an opinion. Some say he's a good man. Some say he's nuts and he's leading people astray. And really, since that day, since, since Jesus' incarnation until now and going into the future, this will not change. The rest of the world will have an opinion of Jesus. Consider the commotion that has occurred so far. Consider the commotion that has occurred thus far in the gospel, right? John the Baptist. Jesus hasn't even broken on the scene in terms of ministry yet. John the Baptist is doing what? Someone's going to come after me, and I'm not even fit to tie that guy's sandals. He's coming. Repent. He's coming. This was before Jesus even was in ministry. Consider Jesus' baptism, right? What happens? All three people of the Trinity are present. God speaks, this is my son. Publicly. The disciples, gathering the disciples. John, what, one and two? The early disciples, I will make you fishers of men. We hear there in those first chapters, the first confessions that Jesus, you are God. This is, this is not just some guy. The wedding at Cana, the first miracle. Changes the water into wine and good wine at that. Followed by the cleansing of the temple, the feast of uh, Passover. Right, so this was six months, right? Passover is the first month of the year. Feast of Booths, the seventh month of the year. So six months later, we're about traveled in two chapters, six months. Jesus cleans out the temple, turns tables, says, get out of here. You guys are fake. Nicodemus, chapter three. Religious authority, teacher of Israel, as Jesus calls him, Nicodemus. In this conversation of being born again. Nicodemus wondering, how do I do that? How does that happen? The woman at the well, I've already mentioned her. The healing of the official son, I believe that's chapter 5. In Capernaum, right? Galilee, again. The healing at the pool of Sabbath. Or at the pool on the Sabbath. Now this, that is where things really start to hit the road. That's where the tension really happens. Jesus heals this guy at the pool on the Sabbath, and the Jews notice, the Jews, the religious authorities. And that is the time in which they start to want to kill him. Again, it's what he's done on the Sabbath. Shortly after, chapter 6, feeds the 5,000. He walks on water the next night. He goes and teaches in the synagogue that we just spent seven weeks walking through. And here we are, the Feast of Booths. The commotion that has already happened around this guy, around Jesus. Those are huge things he has done. Huge things. For his brothers to be like, no, you shouldn't do that. Or, or if you want to be known publicly, you can't be here in private. I mean, all of those things were public, with the exception of maybe the conversations with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Go up. He goes up in his own time privately he goes up on his own it is not his time to be to reveal his glory like he does on the, the mount of transfiguration it is not his time to be arrested and killed but imagine 
Imagine the scenario, the scene here as Jesus walks from Galilee to Jerusalem. He walks into the festival, right? The harvest homecoming. Walk into this huge crowd, shoulder to shoulder. They're broken off into little cliques and little family groups, and they're communing around their, their grilled or fried onions, and they're eating and talking about the events. And Jesus walks in privately. There's no caravan. He's not walking in in a big crowd. He's walking in on his own. And as he walks in, he's hearing the muttering. He's hearing the talking. He's hearing what people are saying about him. Maybe he's hearing the Jews, the religious authorities, talking amongst themselves. Where is Jesus? Where is he? He should be here. Where is he? Why is he not here? He can hear the groups of people talking. Ah, yes, Jesus, that guy who fed me the other day on the hill. He's a good guy. That's a good man. Or maybe, maybe one who, who witnessed the healing at the pool, who did the work on the Sabbath. Some of these, these crowds saying, no, this guy is a lunatic. This guy is nuts. This guy has, has done things he shouldn't do. And he is causing other people to do things they shouldn't do. He walks in to his crowd. And he hears the muttering, right? That's what John says. And there was much muttering about him. Imagine walking into your work party on Christmas and everyone's broken up in their cliques. You're 20 minutes late. Things are going on. And you hear people saying, oh, yeah, Clay, man, he's not very good. Or Clay, he is super good at his job. But you walk in and you're like, okay, this is, this is weird, right? Jesus walks in and he hears these talkers. He hears these talkers. That's what's happened. And so what do we do with verse 10? What do we do with verse 10? But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went up, not publicly, but in private. David preached last week, right? Jesus very clearly tells his brothers what? I'm not going. So is John wrong? Is there an error in his gospel as many will point to? Or is Jesus lying, which is a big deal? What's happening with verse 10? Recall verse 8. You go up to the feast, he says to his brothers. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Here he is in verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. So what do we do with that? Is John wrong? Or is Jesus lying? You all know the answer to that question is no. You know that. The church answer will know that. They will say that. They will know that. But why? But why? So, the earliest manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts. There are two Greek terms used in the earliest manuscripts. One is alpo. I will not yet go. The other, which is reflected in the ESV, is auk. I will not go. The earliest manuscripts have both. Have each. One of each. Right? You look at the NIV. I, probably none of you here are using an NIV Bible. But it says, I am not yet going to the feast. If you have the KJV, some of you may have that. That says something, I don't know the phrase, phraseology, but I am not yet going. So, we have that, right? The earliest manuscripts 
I am not yet going. I am not going. But really, if you want to get really down to the nitty-gritty in the heart of the matter, we read in John 6 that Jesus is doing whose will? He's doing the Father's will. Everything Jesus does, everything Jesus does is according to the Father's will. His active obedience, not just fulfilling the law, that is certainly a humongous part of his active obedience, but fulfilling the Father's will and his command in everything he does. The perfect child. He does everything the Father asks at the time the Father desires. And so, for the brothers to say to him, now is your time to go, he's not there to follow his brother's plan. He's not there to take his brother's commands. Recall Psalm 1. What does Psalm 1 say to us? My favorite, my favorite psalm. Blessed is the man who does what? Walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Remember, John is very clear that his brothers do not believe in him. His brothers then would be categorized as those wicked. Jesus does not take counsel with the wicked, fulfilling Psalm 1. He does not take counsel from his fleshly brothers. He does not obey their commands. But instead, like the second part of this passage, Jesus, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in God's commands. He fulfills the Father's timing. So you see, that is what we do with verse 10. It was not yet his time to go to the, to the festival. And he goes when the Father tells him to go. Not when his fleshly, wicked, unbelieving brothers tell him to go. Jesus is not a circus monkey. He is not, to quote Tolkien, a conjurer of cheap tricks. Tolkien does not refer to Jesus in that terminology. Jesus is not a genie in the bottle. He does not work according to the plans and timings of you and me, of his fleshly brothers. He goes to the festival and does what he needs to do when the Father tells him he needs to do it. He serves the will of the Father alone. So you see for us, you see for us as Jesus goes up to this temple or to this festival on his own time, how often is it that we want and we expect, not just want, want is too shallow, want is not a strong enough term, but if we are honest with ourselves, how, much, how often do we expect Jesus to work on our schedule? I expect this church to grow. I expect to get this job. I expect to have this funding. I expect for this to happen. At the age of 22, I expected to be a head pastor. 
I felt the call to ministry as a junior in college. And by the time I finished college, I expected to be given a job in ministry. I expected to be like Mark Driscoll. Praise the Lord that that didn't happen. And here, now, 14 years later, 14 years later, I'm an interim pastor. Praise the Lord for that. 14 years later. Not that I'm any saint or anything great, but throughout the years, right, I have learned and God has shown me warnings and I've had experiences that showed me, no, you're not ready and you will work on my time. Not on your time. Not on your expectations and that was for my good and it was for his glory and the same is true of the expectations that you have be leery be leery that you do not view yourself as jesus's authority be leery that you do not view yourself as jesus's authority because you're not i am not None of us are. We can make all the plans in the world to quote the proverb, paraphrase the proverbs, but it is the Lord, it is the Lord who orders our steps. So let us not have expectations of Christ to perform some work in our life. David referenced the Garth Brooks song, uh, Unanswered Prayers, and that's exactly right. God and his work on his time is a test of us. It is a test of our faith, right? Do we really believe Romans 8.28? Do we really believe it? Because waiting for Jesus' time, for the Father's time, will reveal if we do believe in Romans 8.28. And if we have that faith because Jesus will go to the feast when it is his time to go to the feast. Jesus will go to the feast when it is his time to go to the feast. You see, he gets there, and as I've mentioned already, the whole world is chatting about him. The whole world is chatting about him. He is on the tips of everybody's tongue. He is the, quite literally, the talk of the town. He is the water cooler conversation. He is the one most anticipated. They want him present, especially the Jews, the religious authorities. Again, the differentiation, right? Throughout the Gospel of John, we have the Jews. Verse 11, where is he? Since chapter 5, when he healed the guy at the pool, where is he? Verse 12, the general population. The Jews, the people, differentiate between the two throughout the Gospel of John. Where is he? The religious leaders are doing what? They're on the hunt. They don't just want to watch Jesus do some circus tricks. They are, want him there for a reason. Right, And he's going to show up, and he's going to make himself known, and he's going to go to the synagogue, and he's going to teach again, and the Jews will have their time. The Jews want him there. The antagonistic opposition is always on the hunt. The most vociferous, 
the ones who make the most noise, they want Jesus there. Where is he? Where is he? Same is true today. Right? Not unlike the liberal Christians who claim that Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life, or, or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses who will deny the divinity of Jesus, or, or other religions who won't even take Jesus into account, or some who will just say he's a prophet, or some who will just say he's a, he a great man. There are those critics out there, those skeptics out there, who are so vociferous, who will make so much noise. And their goal in life is to do what? Just like the Jews, wait for their moment, say where is he, and then tear it down. truth of today it's not any different but let us not let us let it not be lost on us as i believe i said in john 3 when i preached there it is no way unlike the religious fundamentalists of today either those ultra conservative what i call alt-right christians who likewise lurk in the tall grass Wait till they see something they don't like from a brother and say the worst, most vile things about them. They wait and they lurk and let us not be that way either because the reality is, guess who the religious conservatives of the day were? The Jews. Guess who the ones who wanted to hunt him down, arrest him and kill him were? The religious conservatives. Guess who the ones who murdered we all are partaking in that in a spiritual sense. But guess who the ones who physically arrested him and put him on the cross and murdered him and stabbed him in the side? It's the religious conservatives. It's the Jews. The fundamentalists of today are just as vociferous and just as willing to hunt and tear down a brother who is faithful because they had some problem with make up the most nonsense reason and they had a problem with it. The antagonism, those looking for Jesus, those opposed to him, those skeptics, those critics, those Bible scholars that are out there looking, lurking, waiting. Where is he? Where can I pounce? Where can I tear that down? Everybody has an opinion. Verse 12 shows us more of these opinions. The comments from the crowd as Jesus is privately walking through. He's a good man. He helps people. He fed me. He healed my son. He healed the guy at the pool. He made my wine really good. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He, he teaches good things. I hear him talking. Man, he's so wise. He knows the law. He's so smart. He knows the Bible. Good guy. We hear that today. What do you make of Jesus? Ah, he's a great moral teacher. It's a big one. He's a good role model. Perfect role model, right? Sacrifices himself for his family. He's a great role model. It's not any different than today. However, what we find with he's a good man is what? 
a shallow, a hollow, and an empty confession. There's no, there's no weight. Doesn't say anything about him being Lord and Savior. Doesn't say about anything about him being the bread of life, the water that will, that will take away your thirst forever. It says nothing about that. He is a, just a good man. He's a good man. No conviction. No conviction behind Jesus is Lord and Savior. And what does this imply then of Jesus? What does this mean for him? That he is a liar. That's what this implies, does it not? He's already said to them, throughout the last seven weeks we've preached through John 6, he's already said, I am the bread of life. I am the one who comes from the Father. I am God. He's already said it tons of times. And so now, no, he's a liar. That's what this makes him. He's just a good man. That means he's a liar. All of those things he said about being bread of life are false. He's a liar. Other people, some say he's a good man. Others say, no, he is leading people astray. Later in the chapter, in verse chapter 7, they call him demon-possessed. So not only are people saying he's a liar, saying that, nah, just shallowly, he's a good dude, good Good guy, good man, role model, love it, awesome dude. Other people are saying he's a dangerous man. No, he's leading people astray. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. He's to be avoided. He's to be rid of. He's to be murdered. Later, like I said, they call him demon-possessed. Remember Mark 5? The guy that's demon-possessed, like he's nuts and he's chained to the cemetery because he's so crazy. The demon possession, he's chained in the cemetery so he doesn't get out. Well, Jesus, Jesus is demon-possessed, they say. He's a lunatic. He's a lunatic. I've used these buzzwords for a reason. Liar, lunatic, Lord. You know where that comes from, right? C.S. Lewis and his trilemma. His trilemma from mere Christianity. Here's what, here's what Lewis writes. Here's what Lewis writes. I, I, I should read this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as what? A great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic demon-possessed, chained up in the cemetery because he's nuts, on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has left that, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, as I said, your opinion on the person and work of Jesus Christ is not authoritative. Your opinion does not matter if it does not align with what the Word of God tells us. 
And it's funny. It's funny how tightly we, we hold to these opinions. It's funny how these wrong-headed opinions make us feel better. When Christ here himself defines for us and tells us exactly who it is. And I find it incredibly ironic, given in today's society, the weight and importance that is put on allowing a person to define themselves as they want to be defined. Pronouns. Define me as I define myself. That is the rule of the day. I am what I say I am, and you cannot argue with it because I feel that way. That is the rule of the day. Go read um, Carl Truman's new book, the big one. Strange New World, that's the little one, the one that goes with it. I am what I am because I want to be, and that's what I said I am. That's the rule of the day. And isn't it ironic that we have an entire book in which the author defines for us exactly who he is, and yet we cannot take that as face value. We cannot take that for what it's worth according to society. Jesus here defines for us throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, God the Father by the Spirit tells us throughout the Old Testament exactly who Jesus is, and yet we cannot accept that but we can accept the guy next door thinks he's a dog, so we have to call him Rover, right? That makes no sense. Jesus has defined for us exactly who he is, and if our opinions don't line up with the reality of who he is, then our opinions are wrong, and they don't matter. They don't matter. To my second point, what you do then with this reality of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, the bread of life, the water who will quench your thirst forever. What you do with this Jesus and the reality of who he is, not your opinion, what you do with this Jesus and who he is as recorded by God himself will shape your life. It will shape your life temporally, it will shape your life eternally. It will shape your life in time, now, here, as you live. It will shape your life after you're dead. What you do with Jesus will shape both of those things. Look at verse 13, just this one sentence. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So we see these people who have been quite literally physically confronted with Jesus. Like, they watched him turn the water into wine. They watched him make the fish and bread into 12 extra baskets of leftovers. They watched him heal the guy at the pool. These people quite literally affected and, and witnessing Jesus' personal ministry doing what? Responding to that because of how the world has responded. They don't speak loudly. They're not convictional. They're not speaking openly at the festival. They're afraid. They've seen. They've witnessed. They've, they've observed. They've partaken. But they're afraid. What they've done with Jesus has affected how they are living. You see, same with the Jews. They are afraid. What you make of Jesus and the reality will shape your life. 
Because of the religious authorities in verse 13, the people are afraid to speak openly. They are afraid of what retribution might come. But isn't this true throughout the Gospels? Isn't this true throughout the New Testament? What you make of Jesus affects how you live. Jesus is good, but they're not going to say it too loud. We know people like that. I'm sure you do. Jesus is a lunatic. We'll definitely say that loud, right? That gets a lot of praise and applause. Think of Peter and his apostles before Jesus' death. What do they do? They, they leave him. They leave him. Think of after his death. What do they do? They hide. They hide until their eyes are opened. And then what do they do? They minister and proclaim. Think of Pilate. Think of Pilate as he is the one who has to make this decision. He is the one that is confronted with killing Jesus. He's tormented by this. His wife has a dream and she confronts him. It shapes what he's done. It shapes what, G, what, what Pilate did. Think of the Jewish authorities throughout this gospel, throughout, throughout <clears throat> all of the gospels. What are they doing? Confronted with the reality of Jesus, their lives are shaped by the hunting and killing of Jesus. Think of Stephen, the martyr, the first martyr. He knows Jesus. And how does he live? He just lives a short amount of time before he's martyred, before he's killed for what he believes and knows Jesus to be. Think of Paul. Paul's a wonderful example. Think of, he knows Jesus, and how is he before his conversion? It, affect, it affects his life. He's the street corner, the, the street's corner, cheer on. Everyone, is, everyone wants to kill Stephen. Paul's there cheering him on, and everyone's praising Paul because he's vociferously condemning Stephen. He knows Jesus. It's shaped his life. He kills people because of it. He hunts them down because of who Jesus is. And then he's converted. And on the road to Damascus, he's blinded, falls off his horse or whatever it is. He's confronted by Jesus. And his life after. What all of those people did with the reality of Jesus shapes all of their lives. That's not any different for anybody on this planet. It'll affect you in time. How so? If you reject Christ, the world will embrace you. If you reject Christ, the world will embrace you. You see it with Paul. He murders Stephen. The world loves him. They lay their robes at his feet. You see this with Pilate. Do you free the rebel-rouser revolutionary or Jesus? He releases the rebel-rouser revolutionary. Pilate is cheered. You reject Christ, the world will embrace you. You reject him in word, the enlightenment, enlightenment philosophers, David Hume, all of these guys, your intellect will be praised your reason will be praised. Your open-mindedness will be praised. Your thoughtful criticism will be praised. You will become a sage of the day. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31 tells us differently. 
I won't read it now for the sake of time. Read it later. You reject him indeed. Not just word, but you reject him indeed. You live a heathenistic lifestyle. Heathenistic lifestyle. You are a heathen. You live your best life now. You only live once, to quote a famous rapper. You are, another hot phrase, being true to yourself. Oh, you will get praise. You will get so much praise from this world for that. Romans 1, 18 to 32. They will go into their sin. They will commit their sin. And it will reach a point in time when people will be praised for their sin. We've reached that time. If you reject Jesus in this life, you will be embraced by the world. On the flip side, in this life, if you embrace Christ, guess what that means? You will be rejected by the world. You will be rejected by the wor world as your life is shaped and molded into the character of Christ, as your words become more like and about Jesus, as your desires change and conform to those of Christ's. You will be scoffed at. You will be laughed at. You will be mocked as not intellectual, not open-minded. You will be called a bigot for rejecting every other world religion. But you will be embraced by Christ. Think of the churches of our city, some of whom, some of whom desire to be embraced by this world. And so sacrifice the Christ of the Bible for their own opinions. That is a caricature. It is a mockery. Some will call us hate mongerers. Those who stir up hate for other people because of our convictions of Christ. It's true. It's true and I would be lying if I didn't say that. But our embrace of Christ will affect us as we live our embrace or rejection of Christ will affect us eternally. And I will close here. Should we reject Christ in this world? We will be rejected by Christ in eternity. Should we reject him here and now? We will be rejected by him. As the king returns... All knees will bow, like it or not. Some in submission, some in force. But those who have rejected him will be rejected by him. And they will not die, not just disappear. But as C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, one of his great sermons... Everybody is immortal. All of us are immortals. We are dealing with immortals every day. It's just a matter of the condition in which we spend that eternity. Should we reject Christ? He will reject us. And we will spend our eternity in torment as a result of our rejection of his reality. And should we embrace Christ? 
Should we embrace Christ here and now? He will embrace us. He will embrace us. And we will partake in what we read in Revelation 20 and 21 of going into this new Jerusalem and being in his presence, in his city, where he will rule and reign on the throne, he will be king, and it will be perfection. He will embrace us, should we embrace him. There are so many, so many who have heard the gospel, so many who have an opinion of Jesus Christ. So many who will say he's a good man. So many who will say he's a lunatic. So many will say he's not even real. And it is what we do with that understanding, with that reality, that he is indeed Christ, that he is indeed God, that he is indeed Savior, that will alter our lives in time and alter our eternity it is true of everybody. There is no person who has lived or will live who ex is exempt from that reality. So what do we do with it? What do you do with it? Who do we share that with? Who do you tell that to? Who needs to hear that? Lots of people. And it is for us to Go out and do something with it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these scriptures that you have given us by your spirit and by these men who you have inspired to write them. Lord, may these words feed us and nourish our hearts and souls every single day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.